you join me in prayer? Are we good? Father, uh, uh, Samson was a, a man you gave great strength to. He uh, came to appreciate your gift more than you. And uh, pray today that, uh, uh, Father, you will use the gift of your word, uh, the gift of your speaker, uh, magnify yourself through those things. Don't allow us to bring ourselves in front of your gifts as Samson might have done. And uh, so Spirit, come and uh, speak through me. Come and open the ears and the minds and the hearts of those who need to hear from you today. Uh, we pray that uh, you'll help us to understand you again in some of these difficult passages these difficult stories to grasp what's going on. Uh, what is a loving God, an all-powerful God doing and stuff like this. And I just pray that you will help us to see your glory, help us to see your love, help us to see uh, how much we need you, help us to see the beauty of your truth. Help us to know uh, you as our strength but in order for that, help us to see our weakness. In your name we pray, amen. So, uh, I don't know if any of you have spent any time in Judges. Uh, it's probably one of the least favorite passages in our scripture um, to those who don't understand it. Um, there is about every diabolical, debauchery, disgusting act you could think of happens in Judges. Um, rapes, mass rapes, murders, mass murders, um, abuses and beatings and mockings and anything you could think of happens in Judges. And it's difficult to understand why. And I think um, the main thing is um, God is trying to show us uh, what we are when we're separated from him first and foremost, um, even those who have a bit of him. And so uh, I want to do some, a lot of backstory before we get to our main scriptures and uh, we jump in. But uh, So Judges happens between uh, the end of Joshua's time leading Israel and before the start of uh, Solomon's time. And so um, we're going to spend a lot, look at a few scriptures in Judges, but before we do so, we're going to look at Joshua, which is the book right before Judges, and we're going to look at the last chapter of Joshua, so 24, 16 through 20. So if you want to read along, you're going back one book, and it's last chapter, 24. <clears throat> I'm going to read 16 through 20, and so this is Joshua speaking, and then, uh, or before that, this is, the people answered and said, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the people and the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. 
He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And so uh, we start with this conversation between uh, one of the good leaders, Joshua, and Israel. And uh, Joshua had said similar things, and they had responded, hey, we would never do that. We're never going to abandon our God. We're never going to worship other things. We're always going to serve the Father. And of course, knowing his own weakness, knowing the weaknesses of those, but also knowing the history of those who were with him. They, those who are talking about having been brought out of Egypt are the same people who, after they were being brought out of Egypt, at times when um, they weren't given the life that they thought they needed by God, they wandered back in their thoughts of how great Egypt was. And now they're saying, oh yeah, we would never go back. We, we remember what you did in Egypt. And Joshua knows that weakness. And he knows how impure they are. And he knows their transgressions and their sins. And he knows his own. Um, and Joshua says that God is a jealous God. And this is a major point for us to consider today. What does it mean for God to be a jealous God? Why is it good for God to be a jealous God? And as we're going to come to find out, the main reason is... Um, it's not for God's benefit. God doesn't need us, but God knows we need him. He's a jealous God in the sense of he wants what's best for us and for his people. And the only thing that brings that out is when he is our sole focus. He is our sole source of hope. Continuing in our story in Judges chapter 2, so a couple of chapters over uh, I'm going to just read a few there, so if you uh, don't want to flip, you don't have to. But Judges chapter 2, verse 3 says, So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. See, uh, Israel had... um, Judges is the story of Israel breaking covenant in its deepest sense with God. Um fellowshipping with other gods, giving themselves into worship of other gods, becoming a part of cultures that worship something other than God. So God is saying, and now I'm, I'm going to drive them out before you, and you shall become, and they shall become thorns in your side, these people, and these, their gods shall snare, be snares to you. And so uh, later in chapter 2, 16 through 19, this is what uh, we learn about what judges are. And so in 16 it says, The Lord raises up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever God raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so again, we see this story throughout the judges. We have multiple judges who come to Israel to try to bring them out of uh, their fellowship and their communion, their community with other cultures and gods. 
and uh, the judges come and they do some good, but they also do some bad, but they do some saving. Uh, but when that judge passes, when that judge's time is up, Israel does what it has done over and over again. It becomes even worse. It goes back further into their sin and they uh, connect even deeper with other gods. And this is the struggle of judges. And this is why judges is important for us to read. It's because when we worship things other than God, the one true God, havoc erupts. So we're going to look at that in a little bit. But um, just some brief, uh, some more history uh, before we get into it all the way. Um, and so you have uh, Israel was as military presence uh, for a large part of the early New Testament or I mean Old Testament or, or of the early Old Testament um, big military presence um, constantly fighting and uh, avenging God and doing what is good to protect his called community Israel so that he can bring forth his gospel bring forth the nation that will give birth to the Christ but it starts to wane as Israel gets further from God. And so uh, earlier in Judges, we get to Gideon, and there's only 300 men in their community who are willing to stand up and fight. And if God uses just those 300 to kill thousands and to lead Israel into salvation through Gideon and those 300 men. Um, but as we get further and further, we get further from that. Um, and what is happening here is... Um, those former emperors, those former overlords, those former oppressors were really nasty and dirty. They were pretty terrible to Israel. But the Philistines at this point aren't so bad. And so Israel is fairly easily conforming. Uh, they're marrying into, they're uh, becoming family with, they are, their lives are be beginning to very seriously intermingle with the Philistines. And in a certain sense, this is actually even worse for Israel than those previous regimes, because if Israel fully becomes in, uh, becomes connected to the Philistines, Israel dies out. Israel ends. They become just a part of the Philistines, and they no longer are a separated people, and they no longer are a, a called people to which God could use them to bring forth his Savior, to bring forth the Christ. And so there is a great purpose to which God needs to bring Israel out of this time, out of these people, because they're in real danger, and the world, therefore, is in real danger. And so um, Samson arises. So Samson uh, was, his parents are told that, hey, Samson is coming forth by an angel and that he's going to be a Nazarite. That means one who is consecrated to God for a special sense. And so um, he is an individual from a consecrated people who are set apart for a special sense. He is to save those people, to be a judge. Uh, judge is not simply a um, legal term or an official office. It is one designated by God to save Israel, to lead Israel out of its breaking of covenant, out of its sin. Um, the Nazarite is, has three basic commandments to which he needs to live in conformity and in covenant with God. These three are, um, they will never touch a dead body, they will never drink any alcohol, and they will not cut their hair. 
So those of you who know Samson, you know the story of his long hair, his power, and how it was cut, and all of that. And we're going to get into some of that. Um, but it's interesting to know. I mean, he broke every one of these things, uh, except for the last one. But uh, the last one is the one we always think he broke. It's the only one he didn't break. He willingly touched dead bodies. He willingly drank alcohol, but he never cut his own hair. Um, but he was called by God to create conflict with the Philistines because Israel was so, con- in, so conformed to that culture. And God brings about Samson to create this conflict to hopefully separate the two, to allow Israel to be that consecrated group, that set-aside group to which he needed them to be. Um, and, you know, he doesn't... He probably would, he wanted to do it a different way, but Samson was so caught up in himself, the conflict arose basically out of the sin of both groups, Samson and the Philistines. He's so immature that uh, he, he can't be used through wisdom in a certain sense. He wasn't going to hear from God and do what God says uh, in the most righteous way. And so God just uses his sin. So it begins with Samson uh, marrying a Philistine, marrying into uh, and out of the consecrated uh, community and into the non-consecrated group, marrying out of the covenant group into the non-covenant group. Now, this is not about race, culture, nationality, ethnicity. This is about one group being called by God for his gospel and another group who had no connection to God or his gospel. This is the difference in culture. This is the difference in what um, uh, he was marrying into and from. His parents, uh, uh, when Samson comes to them and says, bring me that uh, woman as my wife, say to him, is there not anyone within Israel to which you can marry and he says no this is the one I want so he's told by his parents this is not a good idea but he chooses to do so anyways and so he marries the Philistine and then uh, later the conflict starts and so he tells a riddle that is a bet Um, if you figure out the riddle which he doesn't think anybody will figure out he will owe them something and ultimately they use his wife the Philistine to get the answer And they couldn't figure it out themselves, so they cheat. She gets the information from him. She tells them. They come to Samson. Samson's upset because he knows they cheated. And as a result, he decides to kill some of them in retaliation. He was in debt. He didn't want to be in debt. He killed some people in retaliation. They, in response, kill his wife and her father in retaliation. He, in response, burns their fields. They, in response, uh, come after him again. And this is sort of where we pick up the story in chapter 15. So we we have this, there's a few things that we didn't talk about, but we have this over and over again, this cycle of they do something, the other response, and so we have the conflict that God wanted. 
it was not how he wanted it, but it's the only way he could go about it in this nature of, of these people who are completely broken and in and, and, and sin. And so uh, they're both doing what they think the other is doing to them, and they're just responding. So I think we see sin in a lot of ways here. Uh, I'm going to mention uh, just four explicitly um, to sort of get into what's going on here. The four, I think, uh, that we see most uh, explicitly are uh, getting into bed with idols or other gods, uh, the misuse of uh, our gifts, or the misunderstanding uh, of uh, how important our gifts are in relation to our gift giver, how we celebrate God's victories through the use of our gifts, and then the last is the use of our gifts in response to others' sins. How do we use our gifts in response to other sins? So the first one is one I talk about all the time. And you may be tired of me talking about it, but the Bible talks about it in just about every place. So we're going to continue to talk about it. And Chris talked about it um, at the beginning of our, uh, uh, or near the beginning of our uh, um, Ten Commandments series. Uh, getting into bed with other idols and conforming into a foreign culture not based on race. Again, this is not based on race, ethnicity, nationality, but who or what was worshipped. And so, as we said, um, these people are just basically giving themselves to the Philistine culture. There is no pushback. There is no fight. And we talked about how there had we dwindled down from a huge army of presence to 300 and then really only Samson is the one willing to fight at this point. In fact, when the Philistines show up to come after Samson, to come after the Nazarite, the one set apart within the set of our people, what did we learn? It says that 3,000 men went to Samson and said, what are you doing? No one was willing to say anything to the Philistines, but they were willing to go to Samson and say, what is going on here? It is really revealing when we conform to the world how little we become willing to fight against it. Now, one of the things that we will do is we will foe fight. We have within us a deep need to be righteous and to be servants and to seek justice because that's who we were created in the image of God and those are things to which we would find our joy in because that is what God finds his joy in. And so we will find causes to which we will commit ourselves to and we will fight desperately for them. But it's to appease ourselves, not to actually seek justice and to seek good, and to seek uh, righteousness, and to love people. It's to fulfill in ourselves that deep need to which we have. And so we have people around us who are really committed to causes. But attached to those causes, as we're going to see even further as we go through these things, is a hatred of anyone who is against it. I can't stand the people who do things that go against what is important to me. So we, these idols 
kind of turn us away from how we can best be used by God to deal with these things. But basically, I mean, we've talked about this over and again. Idols are just things that God made that are good, that God gifted to us that are good, that we made more important than God. And so we take his good things and we make them ultimate things and we make the ultimate thing God and we make it maybe just a good thing or a terrible thing. Um, and we, So we take these things and they become ultimate to us and they become what's most important to us. And so when that is what's most important, there are no bounds to which you can pursue those things that would be out of bounds, right? There would be no wrong. This is what I need, therefore I'm going to get it. And everyone becomes simply something in the way or a vessel to be used to get it. And that's what we see over and over again throughout Judges. Those people are either in the way or just to be used for my benefit. The misuse uh, or the misunderstanding of our gifts in relation to our gift giver. Um... A theologian, Edmund Clowney, uh, sums up Samson pretty well in a sermon that he preached on it. He says this, Samson's physical power was the gift of the Spirit, equipping him for combat as a champion of the Lord. In battle, he was invincible. Yet he never led Israel against the enemy, nor did he seek to establish God's kingdom according to his promise. The strong man killed a lion barehanded, but he did it on the way to take a Philistine wife in disobedience to God's law. He killed 30 30 men at Ascalon, but he did so to collect their garments to pay off a wager. He wrenched the gates of Gaza from their sockets and carried them to a mountaintop, but he performed that exploit to escape from a trap that had been set for him while he spent a night with a harlot in a Philistine city. See, Samson was well aware of his gift. He was well aware of to which the power he had with it, and he used it for himself. Because God was not important to him. The gift was what was important to him. And so he used it purely for himself. He used it to gain for himself. And the fact is, we, uh, there's, we have talked a lot in our growth group and some of my other groups about this term called common grace. Common grace is a gift. Common grace is basically anything that you have including life itself, that you don't deserve because of your sin, which is everything. That is a gift. The question is, how are you using that gift? For Samson, it was purely for himself. For anyone, when you use your gifts purely from yourself, judges is what we get. Some of us might be more self-righteous than that, and so we get different types of judges. We get Pharisees. And we get uh, the leaders of the uh, New Testament who are so self-righteous and therefore heaping uh, judgment and, and heaping uh, guilt on those who don't deserve it, um, who are so concerned with their own self-righteousness, they make it a point to point out in a very damaging way the sins of others. This is the reality of the human condition. This is who we are in relation to our God. When he gives us gifts, when we use them for ourselves, when we anoint those gifts or we, uh, we lift those gifts up above our gift giver, we use those purely for our own pleasure. 
Um, we see this further in Samson's life when he meets Delilah in chapter 16, which we're going to talk about here uh, even further in a little bit. But at this point, so he meets Delilah, um, and uh, Delilah is offered um, some wealth, some silver, if she can figure out the secret of Samson's strength. And so there's this cycle of uh, secret traps, in the sense. Uh, so Delilah's trying to figure out what the secret is. Uh, Samson lies tells her that this is what the secret is when it's not. A trap is set using what they think is the secret. Men show up to try to therefore capture him and Delilah says, hey, they're coming for you and Samson, because he lied and he still has his strength, breaks out of it and kills those men. This happens three different times with three different lies and uh, finally the fourth time he tells the truth, but we'll get there in a little bit. Um, But when we we misunderstand the importance of our gifts in relation to our gift giver. And when we use our gifts as if they're ours, not our gift givers, we become just like the people of Judges and just like all the people we dislike. We're no, we're no better. Um, how we celebrate God's victories through the use of our gifts. Uh, verse 18 in uh, 15, we, it reads... Uh, And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Um, So Samson is thirsty. He's almost to the point he's going to die, and he says this prayer. You have granted this victory through the hands of your servant. It sounds kind of nice, but at the same time, you know, he's the servant. At the same time as he's going to God, he's talking about how, yeah, it was me uh, that uh, did this. And uh, he also, so he, he names two things. Um, so he, uh, the one we're going to look at, it says, uh, after God grants him that spring that pops up out of the rock, he's, he uh, names it, and you can basically call it this, one of two ways I've seen in commentaries, the spring of the caller or the spring of the namer. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's dying of thirst, and he calls out to God to save him, and God gives him a spring, and Samson is like, yep, that's my spring. This will be known as my spring going forward. He celebrates God's victory through his gifts by celebrating himself, by pointing to his own strength, by pointing to his own power, by wanting other people to recognize him instead of recognizing the gift giver, instead of recognizing God. How much of your life is dedicated for people knowing how good, how great, how awesome, how cool, how funny, how smart, how um, humble, how uh, great a listener you are, how successful you are at your job, how much of your life is like Samson. When you take the gifts God gave you, And you use them just to proclaim how good you are. Uh, Samson, you know, he does part of these things because he needs people to know how great he is. Uh, You are just like Samson when you do something so that you can be able to proclaim, see, this is my goodness. What, what are the monuments in your life that you point to? 
or the monuments of your life do you point to? What are the trophies of your life you point to? Uh, you have set up in your house, or is it your house, or your car, or your relationship? What are those things to which you name as? See, this is this is the, my spring. This is the thing named after me because you need to see how good I am. We are no different than Samson in that regard for many of us in large parts of our lives. The last one is the use of our gifts in response to other sins. Uh, Samson, a large part of why he did everything was just personal vindication and revenge. Um, he says a really interesting uh, thing after his victory. So, right, he's bound. Uh, the people come to him and they say, you know, they're after you. And he says, all right, well, what are you going to do? We're going to bind you up and give you over to him. He said, well, okay, so you're not going to kill me, right? Because um, he knows that there's no bound that they're going to put him in that he can't break out of. Uh, and so he wants, he doesn't want to fight. At least the one thing we can recognize about Samson is he understands at least who he's to fight against. So if it was his own people who tried to kill him, he would have to fight against them. And so he wants to make clear that they're not going to try to kill him. That they're going to hand, over, hand him over to the people he is to fight against. And so they hand him over and he breaks out of the bounds and he grabs the skull of a donkey and he kills a thousand men. And he says after it, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. So in the language, um, the word for donkey and heaps is spelled the same. And so Samson's victory cry is, basically, is kind of a pun to a certain extent. Um, with the skull of an ass, I've created a, a heap of asses. Um, I killed a bunch of losers, a bunch of morons, a bunch of idiots, a bunch of asses with an ass, the skull of an ass. And he is mocking them. He is using the gifts of God for his own vindication and to mock those who uh, are against him. Uh, in the, the height of uh, the election buildup last year, um, uh, I had a friend post something on Facebook about, in relation to it, I'm not going to go into details, and someone tried to use scripture to say, you're wrong about this, and that person replied back and said, well, you're taking the scripture out of context, here's what it really means. Um, and then another friend jumped in of mine, and he was speaking to the or guy who made the first response and say, here's scripture showing you're wrong, and saying, yeah, how does it feel to be owned, or something like that. It was just a real mocking term of someone who's trying to use scripture to bring about truth. Now, that is a very, I don't know the person who responded to my, to my friend's original post. I know him and I know the person who responded with the owned part. So I, I, I don't know this person and how genuous, genuine they were in their response to use scripture. But I do know that <laughs> Facebook is a very public place where people don't know you can see the fact that you are a Christian and you are basically mocking someone who's trying to use scripture. And, you know, there might be a time or place to put someone in their place, but sometimes we need to be very careful. But when the goal is simply 
to mock someone and uplift yourself like Samson. And I think my friend's reply on Facebook, well, I know my friend's reply on Facebook, um, was the same. We're misunderstanding what God is trying to do with our gifts. We're using our gifts in relation to someone's sin in a very poor way. And we are to use the gift of God's truth and the gift of God's gospel to uplift people, not to mock them. Not to belittle them and not to make ourselves appear uh, great in relation to others. Also, we see that, uh, again, we, we talked about this briefly, but we see that uh, the common gifts that were given to the Philistines and then the consecrated gift that was given to Samson, when they were, see each other's sin, they reply with, well, you did this to me, so I'm going to do it back. There's, again, a sense of revenge. I'm going to use my gifts to revenge the sin that hit me. So how often, you know, when you are hurt by someone's sin, is your response, I see this person has a weakness in their faith in God. I know they're broken because it, and they're deeply in need of more of Him, and so I'm going to be used by God to help them to grow in their faith in this area so they can have His peace where they don't. Or is it more like, you did this to me, Therefore, I'm going to do this to you. When our sin is brought out in these four areas, I think we see that we're very much like the Philistines and we're very much like Samson. And we started this going, man, how can, these people are terrible. These people are awful. I mean, what kind of God would allow this to happen, would, would partake in this nonsense? I am better than this. And I don't think we are. I think we're just like this, and this is why God uh, does what he continues to do throughout history and through this story. We're no better than them. Again, at the end of the, that uh, verse 18, um, we talked about how he prayed uh, out to God, and he said, you have brought this great salvation by the hand of your servant. He then says, shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And he doesn't. God uh, brings up that well we talked about, that spring that we talked about, and God uh, brings life back into Samson. And I think he does so because God is continuing to try to humble Samson and direct him to use his gifts properly. But Samson doesn't heed the warning, and so at the beginning of uh, chapter 16, we see that he sleeps with a prostitute, and then he falls for Delilah, and we that cycle begins where he um, has that cycle with uh, she asks what the secret is he lies, a trap is set uh, Samson in his power defeats this trap because the trap was set on false information but then ultimately he does tell her uh, what the secret is in, this, in a certain sense um, but again going back to what I said earlier the three things that they were told to do as a, uh, as a set apart person is don't touch dead bodies, don't drink alcohol, and don't cut your hair. And so, I think the story is told, hey, Samson told the secret and his hair is cut, and therefore he lost the power. But I don't think that's what happened. Because Samson didn't cut his own hair. He just said that his hair, if he cut his hair, then that would be the secret. 
but somebody else cuts his hair. And so we see at the end of uh, that fourth trap that's set after his hair is cut, in chapter 16, if you want to turn there, in verses 20 and 22, this is what it says. And so Delilah cries out. She says, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I will go out as at the other times and shake myself free. So he, he, he thinks nothing has changed. Perhaps it's because he just woke up and he doesn't realize his hair is cut. I kind of doubt it. Um, but it says he did not know that the Lord had left him. Uh, so we're going to stop there for a second. He did not know that the Lord had left him. I don't think he thought that if someone else cut his hair, the Lord would leave him. And I don't think the Lord left him because someone else cut his hair. I think the Lord ultimately left him because Samson just kept going through this cycle of depending upon the strength that was the gift of God above depending upon God himself. And so God leaves Samson for a time. God wants Samson to realize where his real power lies, not in the gift, but in the giver. So his hair is cut. He's, uh, verse 21 says, The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair on his head began to grow again after he had been shaved. So he's caught um, that night after God leaves him, and uh, he's brought to the mill. He's, uh, his, eye, well, his eyes are gouged out. He can no longer see. He's brought to a mill. He's forced to work for the Philistines in a lowly position in the prison. Um, and he, he's bound in bronze shackles. And then verse 22, that famous word in Scripture, but the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Um, so this was a big moment for the Philistines. Um, they were excited. They thought that this was vindication of them and this was confirmation of their culture and their God. So in verse 22, we read, uh, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand and the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And so, again, we start this whole story of Judges with this warning by Joshua, Do not worship the gods of other cultures. Do not cease to serve your one true God. And the big issue with Israel right at this moment, why Samson was given his consecrated gift, was to create this conflict with Israel and Philistine because Israel was so conforming to the Philistine culture, was beginning to recognize and worship their God. And here now, before these people, is what they think is the ultimate evidence of their God as the true God, and Israel is in great danger. So they decide to, uh, the Philistines decide to gather a great crowd and to continue to mock Samson and to seek to be entertained in his weakness. So they fill up a stadium, and they have people on the roofs of the stadium, thousands of them, 
to just bring Samson into it and to mock him. Uh, the guy who used to be so strong that they had little hope of ever defeating him, who could kill many men at one time uh, by himself with just the skull of a donkey, uh, is now shackled, blinded, and powerless in their eyes. But again, his hair had started to grow back. And so we read in verse 28, it says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one, his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's, upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Still kind of a hard thing to grasp, I think. Um, and here's what's going on. Uh, I think Samson is again. Uh, I don't think we see a real repentance per se in Samson. He's still out for his own revenge, I think, right? Avenge the loss of my two eyes. Um, but God is still at work. And so we have this strong man who became weak. Um, he was given over by one who was close to him for uh, wealth, for silver. He was blinded and he was bound. He was mocked and brought before a crowd to be entertained in his weakness. But there was one even stronger who came, who was given over by a friend who was close to him for wealth, who was brought into the court of one of the kings, and they put a robe on his back and a crown on his head and blinded him and struck him with fists and with rods and said to that strong man which one of us hit you prophesies to us and that one was bound to a cross and on the cross was mocked and was told come down from there if you are the son of Christ and was spit upon um, and that one in response to sin uh, looked down upon those who were the crowd who was cheering his weakness and said Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, Samson is not meant to point us to um, what righteousness is in himself. He's pointing us to a God who's righteous and seeking an unrighteous people. And so we have a righteous God, a God who in his trial and turbulation, as he was being beaten, mocked, and bound, and blinded, Look down upon those who were doing so with compassion and not vengeance. Seeking their forgiveness, seeking their restoration. That uh, spring of life and those heaps of bodies that uh, we read about earlier um, is referenced, I think, in Psalms 10. Psalms, uh, or Psalms 110 is a, a psalm of David and it's a, a, a prophetic psalm of the coming Messiah. And uh, it's uh, speaking of a thirsty Christ, a thirsty God. And we know 
that uh, on the cross, Christ was thirsty and uh, he was given a small drink. But in uh, verses 5 through 7 of Psalms 110, this is what it reads. It says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We read from Ephesians uh, 1 earlier. I'm going to read again in verse 17 through 23. That the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he was raised from him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. So you see, Christ comes in a different way. Christ comes as a servant. Christ understands that while we all have a bit of his gifts, we're missing him. We're not understanding where our true treasures lie. We're not understanding how much he is worth. And he comes in weakness on the cross, but he is still as strong as ever. Uh, Stronger than Samson. He created Samson. Any strength that Samson had came from God himself. God has the strength to give and to take away from Samson. And he has the strength to give and to take away from us. And he chooses to, through the cross, to try to give us his great power, to try to give us his great love, to try to give us his great mercy and righteousness and grace and holiness, a place in his family to restore us to break us out of this cycle of unrighteous people viewing others as just someone in my way or someone to be used. And so he sets up his church and he fills his church with bodies. He fills his body with bodies. But he also separates those who will not know him or see him as their savior from his church. And he sets up a different place with bodies, a place of damnation. In Matthew, we're told of two nets that will collect two different groups of people, those who know him and those who don't. And he does both. So let me take you back a little bit through uh, the story of, of the Philistines and give you a warning or use the scriptures to warn you. Um, Our first episode between between Samson and the Philistines is the riddle to which he gives them. And they cheat, and they get the answer, and they think, all right, we've got one over on him. And Samson, of course, kills some men. The next episode, um, so Samson is gone, peace is restored, um, 
So they took uh, the girl he wanted and gave it to his uh, best man that tried to separate him from his wife. And so Samson burns their fields. So the next solution is, all right, well, we'll, we'll kill his wife and we'll kill his father, her father. And Samson, again, people are slaughtered. So then Samson is bound and handed over. And then we have Jawbone Hill, if you will. Um, the mounds of, of men, or asses as Samson thought they were, even though he was one at the same time. And then we have the ambush uh, by Delilah, or the, the trick, the secret revealed. Um, and Samson, in his wild pursuit of himself through his, the strength to which God gave him, uh, is released. His power is taken. Um, and so he is given over. But of course, even in that, ultimately, God allows him to use his power again to destroy them because they were bringing destruction as well. They were promoting and bringing into Israel a false God, a God that if it consumed Israel would have stopped the gospel. There would have been no salvation. There would have been no possibility of joy of peace. See, God is going to destroy every false idol, every false God. In the Old Testament, that typically was anointed as a God. In today's age, it's anointed of a good thing that our world offers us. But it is a false God nonetheless. And you are either going to be like the Philistines and think you're getting one over on God by using his good things for your benefit, but it's gonna to continue to get worse. Those things are gonna to continue to let you down. They're gonna to continue to lead you to your own destruction, and you're ultimately gonna be separated from God's body because of it. Or you're going to know the God who wants for you the joy to which you are seeking in his good things, but can never get and therefore came to you, those of us, all of us, who are as bad as Samson, as bad as the Philistines, as bad as every person and the judges to which we think, that is awful, that is terrible. We are all a bunch of asses in light of God's holiness and his goodness, undeserving of his grace and his mercy. And we think that we can use his good things to get what can only be found in his holiness and righteousness. And we think that we can judge others as worse than us to prove how good we are in his eyes or should be seen in his eyes, but we can't. But he loves us anyways, and on the cross he asked and sought our forgiveness. And he was lifted up to the right hand after his resurrection of the Father. And for eternity will be our salvation, will be our holiness. And we will be a part of his church and we'll be filled in that church with bodies just like his. Pure and holy and righteous. We will become his perfect workmanship and we will be surrounded in joy and peace and rest.
Paul talks over and over again in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. If, if you can turn there real quickly, we're going to end by looking at a couple of things there. So we're heading to the New Testament. Um, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, after that, Galatians, Ephesians. So in that general area, you want to head. Paul began these uh, two chapters talking about the foolishness of thinking that we have strength in ourselves. And later in verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do not accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will too boast. And he goes on to say in verse 23, or 25, I'm sorry, so, or 24, we'll start there. It says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I have beaten with rods once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. Who is weak, and am I not weak? Who is made to fall? And I am, and am I not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. Uh, skipping to verse uh, or chapter twelve, um, Paul is talking about this thorn. We're not told what it is that's in his side, a constant pain. And he says in verse eight, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Uh, Samson could see himself only as strong because God gave him a gift. Sometimes our greatest gifts or what the world would think is a weakness. Because in that, the gospel can come forth. In that, we don't live in our gifts. We live in our giver, our gift giver, who gave himself because that is what he has known for eternity in himself, in his triune nature, a giver of himself to the others in the Trinity. And that is where joy in life is found. But when we live for our gifts... If it's about us, when we live for the gift giver, it is about him and us giving ourselves for him. And so in our weakness, we must boast. But we do so with the recognition that we are given gifts and God is working for our good and the good of those who can be used, we can be used by God to bring forth his glory through our gifts. And so we celebrate our gifts but because they come from our gift giver who's bringing forth his glory through those things. But we boast in our weakness because only when we do so can God really use those gifts to bring forth his glory. Let's pray.
Father, we, we thank you for your common grace, for your gifts, this life, the breath in our lungs, the intellect, the strength, for those special spiritual gifts to which you gave us. Lord, may you help us to understand those things within your purpose and your will. First, that they come for you, they're to be used for your glory, and to uplift and strengthen those who are hurting. Help us to boast in our weakness. Help us to not form our identity based upon your good things or your gifts. Was to form our identity on the gift giver, the one that makes all those things good. You, the fulfillment of those glimpses of good and joy and peace and rest we get through your good things. Help us to know you in such a way. Help us, Lord, to realize our sins. Help us to know when we're getting into bed with, our, with idols. When we're celebrating the use of our gifts in inappropriate ways, when we're using our gifts for our own vindication or revenge. Help us to know when we're misusing the good things you gave us. Help us to be humbled by that, to know our need for you because of it. Help us to know the brokenness of sinners so that we in our fulfillment in you can love and respond compassionately to them. Help us know when to be bold and when to be empathetic and compassionate. Help us to know, Spirit, how to love people in their sin. Make us weak so that you and your glory can be strong in us. In your name we pray. Amen.